We continue this morning our series in Luke's Gospel as we work our way through Luke. And we come to chapter 6, verse 17. This begins Luke's brief recounting of the Sermon on the Mount. Will you pray with me? Father, we pour out our hearts in love to you because of the love with which we have been saved and redeemed, and we turn to your word. And we pray that you will help each of us as believers in Christ to submit our hearts, our minds, and attitudes and wills completely under the authority of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And where there is need in any heart for repentance and change and transformation in light of this word, then we pray that Every Christian will have by your spirit an open heart for it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that those who are among us today who do not know Jesus Christ will hear clearly the gospel and that you would save lost sinners in our midst in every service of worship. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in the name of the only Redeemer of God's elect, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's Word in your hand? Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 17. This is the Word of the Lord. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And now the corresponding woe, verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Please be seated. The Lord Jesus, after an all-night prayer vigil, has chosen his apostles, as we saw last time. He comes now from the pinnacle of the mountain to a plateau on the side of the mountain, and there the the sick and the needy and the demon-possessed are brought to him for healing, as we have read in verses 18 and 19. In healing the sick and doing battle with the forces of evil, casting out demons, the Lord Jesus is showing that the power of the age to come has now broken into time and space by the coming of Jesus Christ, and this is good news indeed. And in the midst of this activity, the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples and others who have gathered there. In his commentary on Matthew's gospel on the Sermon on the Mount, D.A. Carson suggests that this sermon probably took several days 
Well, I suppose we can't know for sure, but Luke is certainly giving a brief summary of the sermon. Around 80 verses that are found in Matthew's account are absent from Luke's account. The sermon focuses, of course, on kingdom ethics. When anyone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a new way of seeing things and a corresponding new way of life. And that's addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we also have here a shorter account of the Beatitudes. Many of the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel are not found here. Luke is being very, very selective. And it probably would help in a preliminary way if I made a few comments before we look at the first Beatitude this morning. Beatitude means blessing. Makarios is a word that means blessed, fortunate, happy, in the sense of being a privileged recipient of the grace and favor of God. What is promised in a beatitude grows right out of the character described. For example, the poor have a great inheritance. And also the beatitudes are paradoxical by human standards. Who would, who would think in, a, in, in the world of the blessing of poverty? So poverty, riches, mourning, laughter, persecution, happiness, it just doesn't fit the way the world thinks. It is, as Hendrickson says, a reversal of human evaluations. The order is important, and certainly it's important, as we will see today, that poverty of spirit is first in the list. And then the Sermon on the Mount, even though he lifts up his eyes and he begins to instruct the disciples, it's also for others who are there. As we move along, we not only find kingdom instruction and ethics, but we find warnings about a right foundation for life, or the two builders, or the woes. We have read one of them already this morning. Now the first beatitude and the corresponding woe. We see it in verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The first thing we want to see, for you note takers, the first thing is an ascription of blessedness, an ascription of blessedness. Makarios, blessed are you. Now we've seen that word in Luke's gospel, for example, in chapter 1, verse 48, in the Magnificat, when Mary breaks forth into praise, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And so it speaks of great joy, the joy of the believer because he shares in the blessing of the salvation of the kingdom of God. But who are the blessed? Well, look at verse 20 again. Blessed are you who are poor. Which leads us to the second thing we want to see. What is poverty in this beatitude? What does poverty mean? Well, it's certainly opposite of the world's viewpoint. The world stresses self-image, self-indulgence, self-reliance. Blessed are they who are on top. As Watson the Puritan says, how poor are they that think themselves rich? How rich are they that see themselves poor? We think ever so much of ourselves. We human beings outside of Christ, fallen into sin, We're like cats straining to squeeze through a mouse hole. We are so big in our own minds and our own estimation before coming to know Christ and being humbled by grace that we cannot enter into the straight and narrow gate. A necessary characteristic of those who have entered the kingdom of God is poverty. 
And the Matthew account makes it plain that this poverty is poverty of spirit. We can't produce it. We can't work it up. We can't make it happen. This is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates sovereignly the hearts of sinners. It's not material poverty. It has Old Testament background. You read in the Old Testament of the poor of the Lord, the oppressed, the lowly, the humble. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit than to divide the spoil with the proud. And so it's poverty of spirit that is intended by our Lord Jesus in this beatitude. So that leads to a third question. What characterizes spiritual poverty? If poverty of spirit is a blessing for the people of God, then what characterizes spiritual poverty? And I think from God's word, it's not difficult to give characteristics of spiritual poverty. What is difficult is actually to find it in the life and in the heart. The first characteristic is a sense of poverty, a sense of poverty, a sense of our need. Some people who are in spiritual poverty are not poor in spirit. Do you remember the letter to Laodicea in Revelation 3? Jesus says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, Watson the Puritan, he is in the worst sense poor who has no sense of his poverty, Has your heart been shown your need of poverty of spirit and humility in God's presence? The gospel poor are those who are rich in Christ. We know ourselves by grace to be rich in Christ, but by nature to be wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We are like Moses who said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Or the Apostle Paul, who says, who is sufficient for these things, thinking about gospel ministry? And yet in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, after that utter expression of dependence, he goes on to say, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So a sense of poverty But also a characteristic of spiritual poverty is that the man, woman, or child who has known this in the heart is genuinely and deeply humbled. Some people are humble and proud of it, swollen with humility. Genuine humility does not focus upon self. Genuine humility focuses away from self on the character of God. The poor in spirit have contrasted themselves with God. We just had read to us by Pastor McDonald this morning the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on a throne. What happened when he saw this high and lifted up transcendent God? Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and yet with these eyes I have seen the Lord. He is completely and utterly humiliated in the presence of this God. And that's why he needed atonement and forgiveness and his guilt to be removed, and so do you. 
You need the forgiveness of sins and your guilt to be removed. If you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need a Redeemer. You need to see something of who this God is in His holiness. You need to be humbled in His presence. The poor in spirit then have contrasted themselves and continue to contrast themselves with God and His sovereign majesty. Who in the presence of such a God could have lofty views of Himself? Can such a man be showy? No, His Love appears to him, the man, the woman, the child who is lowly in spirit, his love appears to him cold, his faith weak, his repentance shallow, his humility proud, his deeds utterly and completely inadequate. Isn't this what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen? For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and lofty place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66 verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But then those who are poor in spirit know that they are debtors to grace as we have sung this morning. Years ago, I heard a well-known American evangelical on a radio broadcast talk about the atonement of Christ, the cross of Jesus, in these terms. We, of course, are sinners, he was willing to say, but there we are on the floor, all of us sinners, and we are just wonderful pearls. The problem is we're no longer strung. And so Jesus came into this world, and when he died for us, he was restringing these wonderful, worthy pearls. We were so valuable to Christ that he died for us, so innately worthy, so meritorious. And the New Testament knows nothing about this, nothing. Yes, we are created in God's image. But ethically, we are fallen in Adam, we are God's enemies, and we are wholly adverse to God. That's what the New Testament teaches. And that's what makes the cross so amazing. It is his worth, not ours, that is underscored in the work of Jesus. It is his merit, not ours, that is underscored in the cross of Christ. He died for the ungodly. He died for the weak. He died for the helpless. He died for sinners. He died for rebels. Calvin says that poverty of spirit is a kind of self-annihilation. What do I have to offer to God? I have nothing. And that's the conclusion to which Paul came after his conversion. As he says in Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul knew he needed an alien righteousness. He had none of his own. He needed the righteousness of Christ in order that he might be legally presentable in the courtroom of God. And surely spiritual poverty means knowing that we are spiritually bankrupt apart from the grace of God. But also, if we have spiritual poverty, we are importunate beggars. We come before the Lord, and yes, we are sons and daughters by adoption, but it is by adoption. It is not because there is anything in us that would make us worthy to be his children. 
Yes, we come boldly to the throne of grace through the merit of Jesus Christ, but as we come, we come as those, again, the Puritan Watson. This is the difference between a hypocrite and a child of God. The hypocrite is ever telling what he has. A child of God complains of what he lacks. And so we come, Lord, I lack, I have nothing, my hands are empty. You do this great thing for which I pray. We are importunate beggars. And then, if we have poverty of spirit, the psalmist tells us that we have broken and contrite hearts. Rather than hearts that are filled with rebellion, rather than hearts that are filled with animosity, with hatred, with bitterness, we are humbled before him. My sins and sense of my need crush my prideful heart. My heart now is filled with the cross of Christ and the great thing that he has done. In Psalm 51, the psalmist says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. There's some believer here this morning and you hear these words and you need to hear them deeply because you have been going through a period in your life in which you are rebellious in which you are hard-hearted, in which you are holding animosity, perhaps anger to God for which you never have a right, or animosity toward the people of God whom you are called to love because they are saved by grace as you are. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Poverty of spirit is deep repentance. It is a turning from sin daily and a following after the ways of the Lord according to his word. The guilty publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Turn ahead in Luke to chapter 18. Just keep your finger where it is and turn to Luke 18 for a moment. And let's simply read together verses 9 through 14. You remember this parable, Luke 18, 9 and following. Here is poverty of spirit, and here is pride of spirit. Verse 9, Luke 18, 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so to have pride in our hearts toward God or to our fellow Christians, to have hearts that are filled with self, to exalt ourselves above others, I have no moral virtue to commend me, is what the man who is poor in spirit says. Isaiah 64, 6 describes me outside of Christ, shows me my need of Christ. 
We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Do you see that? So you do you see poverty of spirit, recognizing our complete insufficiency, being genuinely and deeply humbled before the holiness and transcendence and sovereignty of God, knowing that we're debtors to grace, importunate beggars with broken and contrite hearts. This was illustrated well in the Puritan literature. Thomas Manton was one of the great Puritan theologians and preachers involved with the Westminster Assembly and producing the Westminster Confession of Faith. The story is told, and I quote, A good woman who was charmed with Dr. Manton said, Oh, sir, you have made such an excellent sermon today. I wish I had your heart. Do you so? said Manton. Good woman, you had better not wish for my heart, for if you had it, you would wish for your own again. That's poverty of spirit. The best men see themselves in the worst light, constantly and utterly in need of grace upon grace upon grace. Poverty of spirit is summed up in Matthew Henry's words, the fountain of all other graces is laid in humility. Those who would build high must begin low. Or to illustrate it again, Cornelius Van Til, the great professor of apologetics at Westminster Seminary, used to say to the students there, he'd say, boys, the older I get, the more sinful I become. By which he meant, the more I mature in Christ, the more I see my need of a Savior. Or a member of our own congregation with whom I met just recently, a man who has long walked with Christ, who said to me, Pastor, I read Psalm 51 and I weep right along with David, one of our older saints. Or the hymn line, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Or the line from Rock of Ages, another toplady hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now this is a point to note. The thoughts and feelings associated with poverty of spirit are God-centered and not man-centered. They have great implications for our relationships with others, but the thoughts and feelings are God-centered. The Pharisees claimed to be God-centered, but in reality were thoroughly man-centered. They did not understand grace. They did not understand their need of grace. They had no poverty of spirit. The man who has poverty of spirit submits to what the Bible says about him, kneels before the Lord and says, God is God. I don't negotiate with him. God is God. The attitude, I think, is best summed up at the end of Job. As Job has gone through these horrific experiences, yet under the guidance and hand of the providence of God, and as he comes to the end of the book, you recall that God shows something of his greatness and majesty and glory to Job. And essentially, God says to Job, if I may just simply paraphrase this, he says, you don't understand why you have gone through these things. You don't understand what has happened. I understand. Look to me. It is sufficient that I understand. 
And having seen something of the glory and majesty of God, Job then says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it is only as Job is brought into utter humiliation that we come to the end of the book and see how God raised him up. Christ came, utter humiliation, the pure son of God, and then was exalted. And that is rewritten in the lives and hearts of his children that we also are brought into utter humiliation and God raises us up in due time. That attitude is true, the true source of joy, because it begins to find all delight in God and all delight in his grace and all delight in his mercy. Which leads us to the fourth thing we want to see, the reward of grace. The reward, not of merit on our part, but of grace. And it's found in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. What's the reward? For yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are synonyms. Jesus may have said this in more than one way, or Luke may be applying theirs to you. Yours is the kingdom of God. And I remind you that in the New Testament, that kingdom is not only the sovereignty of God over all things, but particularly the sovereignty and supremacy of God in the sphere of saving power. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But the thing for us particularly to note in the reward of grace that is shown to those humbled under his mighty hand and who have been granted the grace of poverty of spirit is the precious present tense. Look at verse 20 again. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not simply a future promise, though it is yet to be consummated. The kingdom of God is a present reality in your life that should determine the way you live. And think about now as well as the future. Turn to First Peter, the first chapter. You can find this all through the New Testament. You find it all in Paul. You find it here in First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Notice how Peter puts it. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. Breaking out into doxology, he says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see how Peter puts it? There awaits you, there awaits you this undefiled inheritance, but it is yours. It is kept for you, and you are kept for it. 
That's the blessing of the kingdom of God, of which all those who know true poverty of spirit are a part. And all the Beatitudes are under the one theme of this great kingdom. We receive God's grace, the kingdom, the blessings of a heart like this. Why, people of God, don't you see? Surely you must. It is pure grace. It is pure grace. It is pure, free, sovereign grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. Let me say it again. It's grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. You have been transferred out of this awful kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. It's a present reality, even though the fullness of consummation awaits. This is the new way of seeing that should determine how you look at everything, how you view your relationship with God and how you view your relationship with husband and wife and children and church member and others around you. I am a member of the kingdom of God by grace. I am so privileged. I will love the God who has done this for me. I will love his people who are ill-deserving just as I am, and I will not be proud toward them. What a wonderful truth. Because if you are not in this kingdom, the greatest hindrance to entering the kingdom is pride, overweening pride. We cannot be filled if we are not first emptied. Now, if those who are poor, those who have poverty of spirit are blessed, then those who are proud in spirit, who don't know Christ, are cursed. Which leads us to the fifth thing we see in the text, a curse upon the proud in heart. For every beatitude that Luke records here, there is a corresponding woe from the lips of Jesus that he records. So again, verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, poor for yours is the kingdom of God, But verse 24, the corresponding woe, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Beatitude is a blessing pronounced now, the woe is a curse pronounced now. Rich here means the opposite of poverty of spirit. Turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 16, Proverbs 16. Just to give you an example, Proverbs 16, verse 5. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Now, this is not my word. I'm just a messenger. This is God's word. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Can you imagine anything worse than that? Be assured, he will not go unpunished. You've already received your consolation, if this is you. Whatever has absorbed your heart, absorbed your interest, has filled you, 
That's your reward. But it will be of no avail in eternity. None whatsoever. It will mean nothing before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. What good would these things do you? Money. More money. Being on top. Manipulating people. Hatred. All the things that can fill the proud heart. Of what good will these things be before the judgment seat of Christ, I ask? You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer. You need the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. You need a change of heart. You need to be humbled under grace. That's what we all need. And to each of us before coming to Christ, it could be said, you are too good in your own eyes. Too good to see yourself a sinner. Too good to go to heaven. Too good for the cross. Too good for Christ's substitutionary work. And your stupid bigness. I mean, we're just puny creatures and fallen creatures under the condemnation and wrath of God needing salvation and we're so boastful and big in ourselves. Your bigness stands in your way. You're big. True of all of us outside of Christ. And the Christian continues to deal with it. You're big in your own eyes. Your plan, your kingdom is big in your own eyes. What you want, what you want. You don't know what you want. You don't want hell, do you? You don't know. You don't understand. You're blind. You're dead. Apart from grace. You don't get it until the Holy Spirit opens your heart. So you're big and in your eyes God is small. You ever wonder in our culture how the name of the Lord can be taken in vain so easily? How you hear things said about God even by Christians. They're ill-taught and it's nonsense. Just awful, awful things said about God. It's because we're big and God is small in our eyes. And we think sin is a light matter. You don't see him as infinite and holy, and he certainly does not fill your heart and life. Your universe revolves around you and not him. How utterly foolish we are. We're like the Pharisee in Luke 18. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you I am not like other men. But when God gives us salvation, he gives us at least a real and genuine beginning of poverty of spirit. If my hands are full, I cannot receive a gift. Grace empties your hands, and faith is simply a receptacle to receive the gospel. If my hands are full, my works fill my hands, then I've not yet been enabled to receive Christ by faith. To be spiritually poor is to acknowledge that God is great and I am not. That he is holy and I am not. That that he is pure and I am defiled. That he is all and I am nothing. This is to be poor in spirit. 
And then we will cry out, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And then we will depend upon the merit of Christ alone. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. But don't wait to be humble to come to Christ, because you'll never come. You can't do this on your own. This is not a work of righteousness that you perform. May the Lord enable you to ask even now that he empty you of your vainglory and self-righteousness and grant you poverty of spirit that is necessary for entering into the kingdom of God, not as a condition, because it's God's gift also. So on the one hand, I say to you, believe in Christ. On the other hand, if you're an unbeliever, I know you can't. Pastor, you're telling me to do something? I'm saying you are responsible to return to the God from whom you have departed, even though incapable. Yes, I'm commanding you on the authority of God's word to do something you can't do. In the knowledge that God takes his word and the Holy Spirit so often takes that word and he grants what you do not have and gives you life from the dead, and gives you saving faith, and gives you poverty of spirit, and humbles you under the greatness of the sovereign God. I know that that when I preach to the lost, I'm preaching in a cemetery. But I also know that Jesus Christ can raise the dead. It's God's gift. It's not your work. It is the evidence of God's grace when we are humbled in spirit. So cry out to him, Lord, I am tragically lost. Save me. That's poverty of spirit, and only the Lord can give it. Give up your kingdom and enter his. For blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Repent of glorying in yourself, which we all do outside of Christ. And Christian, where we're tempted to continue it, let us repent today. And join with Paul who said, and all the saved who echo this desire, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. May God empty us of self-boasting and may we join with Paul the Apostle, boast in the cross, boast in the cross, boast in the cross, boast in the cross. Christian, boast in the cross. And God's people said, Amen.